This is Yudaha Cohen and Lizzie Oziel. Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Israel's conflict with the Palestinians has flared up this week with bombings in Jerusalem. And to be honest, while the security threats always exist and they're probably not going to go away until we resolve our conflict with the Palestinians, I'm concerned that this week's violence could allow Benjamin Netanyahu an excuse to give in to American demands that he form a unity government together with Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid rather than a nationalist coalition with the Haredim and national religious parties. Um, I definitely think that that is uh, a possibility. Um, there's been that trend in Israeli politics where when there is a national crisis, things that usually would upset the Israeli public seem to be accepted in instances where it seems to be an, an issue of national security. So this definitely could be a case of that. Right. I think that if this is an instance where Bibi Netanyahu is planning to have this government be, you know, his last rodeo, then it's very possible that that's the direction that he's going to take it in. Personally, I think that after the last unity government, Israelis are hoping for a government that actually does represent them. And I would say that for Bibi to go against so clearly his voter base's political affiliations to align with people such as Gantz and Lapid, especially Lapid, who has been such a vocal um, adversary of Bibi, I think it would really, really disappoint his voter base. I think it would disillusion them. Uh, Bibi would alienate a lot of his voters in the national camp as it would make them question whether or not he is staunchly, you know, on their side or whether or not he's really a self-serving politician and is only looking out for his own political interests. I think this will be a defining moment for his voter base to see whether or not he is really a politician who listens to their interests or not. First of all, I think it's important to remind ourselves that the last government that claimed to be a unity government was not at all a unity government. It was really just a coalition of the most westernized parties with Ram, with the Islamic party of Mansour Abbas. Uh, but for the most part, it was just the most westernized parties, some who identify as liberal, some who identify as conservative. Uh, but a unity government that includes Likud, includes Yeshatid, includes the Haredi parties, uh, would be able to present itself to the public as much more of an authentic unity government because it would include many different tribes of Israeli society and not just you know different flavors of one tribe, as the last government was, not counting the Islamic party. Um, I, I also think it's a question if this is indeed Bibi's last rodeo, is his focus going to be on doing what he wants, what he believes is right, either for himself or for the people of Israel, or is he going to do what the Americans want? Meaning, I think that if Netanyahu sees this as his last stint as prime minister, he might be more likely to form a government with Smotrich and Ben Gvir and the Haredim than with uh, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid because he'd be less concerned about the Americans trying to intervene and remove him, as they've tried to do in the past and have sometimes succeeded and sometimes not succeeded. I, I think in general, Netanyahu has done a decent job when it comes to outmaneuvering the U.S., and their interests here. You know, he got us through eight years of Obama and four years of Trump, really thwarting their efforts to divide our land in half. And even though 
domestically, it might be easier for him to govern and advance the policies that he believes are good for the people of Israel with partners like Smotrich and Ben Gvir and Maoz. I don't think he's confident that they know how to play this game, meaning he might perceive his own ability to outmaneuver the Americans and resist their agenda here. He might perceive that as easier to do without people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir in his government, uh, unless they learn how to play the game he's been playing and not constantly attack him and, and try to publicly embarrass him and pressure him to do things that he doesn't feel, you know, it, it's an appropriate time to do. I would tend to agree with that assessment. I would say that just from looking at politicians such as Smotrich and Ben Gvir, it's clear that the language in which they speak in and the way in which they address the public and just the way that I'd say that they, their political game operates um, is very not conducive to Bibi's style of dealing with the Americans. Um, and it would it would potentially create some barriers for Bibi to skirt American interests while still presenting a good face to America. So it, it is possible that he uses this opportunity to kind of prod Israeli society into accepting another form of a unity government. Um, I personally wonder how that is going to play out in Israeli society. I think the last election cycle, and just over the past five years, how how it's been such a struggle to form a government. In this election cycle, it was very clear who Israelis turned up for and who they want in power. And I'm not so sure that Israelis are feeling so good about the system that allows parties who really did not win that much support to actually be the ones running their government. So I think Bibi has some political calculations that he has to make right now in terms of going forward and how all this is going to play out. Right. A lot of the problem, a lot of the problem is that Israelis tend to desire stability more than the realization of their democratic choice. Meaning if there is a situation of crisis in the country, then the Israeli public could be very easily convinced, regardless of who they voted for, to accept a unity government because it's a time of emergency. It's an urgent situation in which um, the public is, and this has happened many times in the state of Israel's history, the public is convinced to support the establishment of a unity government. It's presented as being the responsible thing, as being in the interest of all Israelis, that we need to come together, you know, Jewish unity, right? It's a very deep value in our people. Um, it's definitely a classic Zionist trope, right? The idea of Jewish unity, even if that unity is superficial. And uh, so, so I don't think I don't think he would suffer politically in a time of crisis from forming a unity government. But the question is, will he be able to do what he wants to do with those partners? I mean, would he be able to steer the state? Would he be able to dominate the national agenda with Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz as partners? Will they accept their roles as junior partners in such a government and let Bibi essentially chart the course? And by the way, they might be, they might understand the political game and the international situation better than people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir, which would mean that they might be more likely, somebody like Lapid or somebody like Gantz might actually be more likely to accept a like junior position and accept the fact that they're not really charting the state's course in a coalition with Bibi. Uh, they might just be happy to be included at this point. Um, and their voters might be happy to see them in, as opposed to people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich. Whereas Ben Gvir and Smotrich, especially Smotrich, might legit demand to have his hand on the steering wheel. And I think that to a certain extent, 
Smotrich's inexperience uh, really exposes itself when you see his lack of understanding the political game and the international situation. That's one of the reasons why I've been so adamant in claiming that Bezalel Smotrich should be Israel's foreign minister, not defense minister, because being Israel's foreign minister would force him to learn the international situation, the geopolitical game in a way he seems to not fully understand at the moment and would actually make him a better player. I trust where he's at in terms of identity. You know, I, I trust that he really is deeply rooted in our national story, and in our national aspirations, but I don't think he understands anything about the world beyond our borders. And to be a leader of the nation of Israel today, you need to understand the world, not just your own people. Right. And I, I also don't think that he understands how to speak to uh, the entire country. I think he speaks to, you know, his specific camp very well. But in terms of being able to communicate what they're actually pushing for, what they actually believe in, um, I personally find that they do a very, very poor job at, you know, there's there's a lot of accusations leveled against them that they're very radical and that they're very, you know, extreme. And he doesn't do a very good job at flushing out his ideas for people who tend to believe that or actually demonstrating to them, you know, the, the deeper message behind a lot of the things that he is pushing for. Uh, and so I definitely think that that might bubble up as something problematic. If he were to be in a government formed with Bibi, um, I'd agree that there'd be certain things that he's pushing for or trying to push for or saying in the international media that might actually get in Bibi's way in terms of trying to play this international political game. And I think Bibi has a little bit of a challenge facing him now because even if he's able to form this unity government, like you said, is he going to be able to steer the ship? Is he going to be able to, for the next four years, if the government's stable, uh, actually please his voters and accomplish what he set out to accomplish in the government. Because I think that taking that risk, it is a big risk. Because if he's not, I think that Bibi's credibility will be very, very damaged in the eyes of Israelis. Uh, because the, one of the reasons that the, the voter turnout is so large for Bibi is because there is this growing sentiment that Israelis would like to see a more nationalist government in power. That's why Smotrich got as many votes as he did. And so for the next four years, Bibi joins a unity coalition and is not governing with a more nationalist hand, I do think that he will encounter some political trouble later if he does plan to run again after this. I'm not so sure. First of all, even though I think that Smotrich and Ben Gvir do represent a growing sector of Israeli society uh, that's only going to grow larger and larger as we advance, um, I'm not sure how many of their voters this time around are really hard voters, meaning are really like loyal voters. I think there are a lot of people who could have voted BB, went, re really voted Ben Gvir, not Smotrich, really voted Ben Gvir in the end. Uh, they still want to see BB as prime minister. Their vote for Ben Gvir was really somewhat of a protest vote. Like it was a soft vote, a protest vote. It was uh, an attempt to give something new a chance. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily a large number of Israelis who will be angry if Smotrich and Ben Gvir are excluded so long as Bibi is the prime minister and doing things that he is able to convince the public are what they want. Meaning not only, not only is Netanyahu good at the international game, Netanyahu is also very good at the domestic political game. And he's very good at convincing his supporters that he's been doing what they want. And in many cases, it's true. Like Netanyahu is is somebody who I believe uh, deep down is an ideologue, 
does have a vision for this country. It might not be my vision for the country, but he does have a vision for the country that we can call a revisionist Zionist vision. Uh, he does want to protect the homeland. He does want to keep Eretz Israel in Jewish hands. He does want us to be strong. He does want us to be safe. I'm not sure how much he deeply understands some of the cultural conflicts in Israeli society. And I think he's definitely uh, done some dangerous things like empowering right-wing Christian forces in Israeli society, allowed a lot of like Christian evangelicals to gain a foothold in Israeli society that could ultimately be very dangerous for us. But when it comes to the land of Israel, uh, which is probably the major source of tension between the state of Israel and the United States, I, I think Netanyahu is solid and deeply committed. And as long as he's seen to by the public as fighting for our security, like uh, taking a hard line against security threats, whether they be Palestinian, Iranian, whatever, and not uh, relinquishing parts of our homeland, I think that for the most part, his voters will see him as doing what they want him to do, whether or not Smokich or Ben Gvir are in that government. Um, if if he forms a government with Gantz and Lapid, and that government is dragged towards the agendas of Lapid's voters, that would be a very different story. But I don't see that happening. I don't see Lapid or Gantz being capable of dragging the agenda away from Netanyahu sitting together. Uh, I think Netanyahu would definitely have both hands firmly on the steering wheel of the state uh, in a government with Gantz and Lapid. Although I personally would much rather see a government with Smotrich and Ben Gvir and Maoz, but I'm concerned. I think their political behavior since the elections has really shown me that they might not be ready to play this game at the level they need to play it. And I think because Bibi has created so much ambiguity around whether or not he is an ideologue or a self-serving politician, a lot of the national camp sees him as a self-serving politician. I think Smotrich sees him that way. And therefore, even if Netanyahu tries to explain to Smotrich how this game works and how he needs to outmaneuver the Americans carefully, etc., I think Smotrich would have trouble trusting that Bibi's telling the truth. I think he might suspect Netanyahu in such a situation of really just trying to trick him into accepting a less important ministry or not advancing something that he feels needs to be advanced or not uh, pushing an issue that he believes needs to be pushed. So I think that Netanyahu might have come to the conclusion that based on both the American pressure to form a unity government with Gantz and Lapid and the inability of potential partners like Smotrich to play the game that needs to be played, it could be that Netanyahu has come to the conclusion that he's better off uh, with a unity government where he has full control and advances many of the policies that Smotrich and his voters would anyway agree with. I think that's a pretty fair assessment of the way that things can go. I think that the cultural differences that we just mentioned before that Bibi does not seem to have such a clear understanding of within Israeli society, um, as the demographics of the voting age population changes, um, I do think these cultural differences will become more pronounced. Um, it, Israeli society changes at such a rapid pace. And I think that all of the events in the world right now are actually having an effect on Israeli society where you see people coming out and, and wanting to be more nationalist and wanting to be more Jewish and not just on a political level, but also on a, on a cultural level. And these contradictions within Israeli society uh, over the next four years, um, I'm curious to see 
if BB forms a unity government, um, the reaction from the public in terms of how Bibi's going to run things. Because I think even if he's able to advance a nationalist agenda in terms of like the land of Israel, geography, and those types of things, I wonder if that is going to allow him to make the necessary cultural changes that people are really pushing for and that people are really hoping for. Um, so I guess we'll just have to see how it plays out. Right. And if listeners are enjoying this analysis and like our program, I really want to encourage you to contribute to making it happen. Like this program is 100% listener funded. Um, we don't want that to change. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and click donate on the menu bar up top. We could really use your support. This show really exists based on your support. And also we understand that uh, things are tight right now. Not everybody has disposable income to give to projects like this one. Uh, so if you're not in a position where you're able to contribute to the show financially, please you know, give us a good rating, good review, share this podcast with your friends, because that also really goes a long way in helping us get these ideas out there, helping us to expand our reach and to educate more and more of our people to think uh, more critically and more scientifically about advancing Jewish liberation. So I encountered an article in Haaretz um, yesterday that touched on feminism in the Haredi communities. And it, the argument that the article was making is that essentially feminism is failing Haredi women. So when I read this article, I really wanted to come on here and invite your wife, Sharona Ashet Cohen, who is a pioneer in post-colonial Hebrew feminist theory, to talk a little bit about what was said in this article and to respond and address some concerns about, you know, how feminism should relate to the Haredi community and how we can help Clarity women who feel oppressed in one way or another uh, break through those cycles without um, culturally imposing ways that are foreign to them onto them. All right, let's bring Sharona on. Sharona Eshit Cohen. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, Sharona, have you had a chance to read the article? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I'd love to hear what your initial reaction was upon reading it. Sure. So, just to give a brief overview of what the article is about. It was written by a woman uh, who grew up in the Haredi community um, named Behudis Fletcher. And she she essentially made the claim that what she refers to as liberal feminists don't want to, to get involved with helping liberate Haredi women because they don't want to infringe on the values of that community. When she refers to liberal feminism, I'll just make a note. I think what she means is transnational and post-colonial feminists. Um, just based on, on how she was describing them, which is different from liberal feminists. I just want to make that caveat. But the truth is, her, her article came across as very sympathetic. You know, she she's clearly in a lot of pain with regards to her experiences in the Haredi community. And she feels like she's not getting the support she needs from other women who, who claim to be feminists. That being said, I have a lot to say on on her approach. <laughs> Right. I actually had the same thought while I was reading the piece as she's referring to these liberal feminists. I got the sense that the feminists she was like speaking to were not actually liberal feminists. They were feminists who are transnational post-colonial feminists. And um, I think it's probably important to talk about the difference between the two. And also, I would love to hear your thoughts and flush them out on on the actual the argument she put forward. Sure. So I'll start by saying that I first of all, I, I think that it's important for all of us 
who are on this episode to acknowledge that none of us are coming from within the Haredi community. So anything that we're saying is is really coming from an outside perspective, certainly myself and my opinion. That being said, I do, you know, I, I see that there probably are serious issues in the Haredi community. With regards to women's ability for or access to upward mobility or a sense of freedom, whatever that means. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that those issues aren't stemming from the Jewish side of Haredi ideology. They actually are ironically stemming from the Western ideal of individualism, meaning that the Haredi, Haredi ideology is based very much on emphasizing the religious components of Jewish civilization and kind of de-emphasizing the national components. But when that happens, when there's an emphasis on just the individualistic aspects of our civilization, then it's inevitable that there's going to be more of an emphasis on the Western ideal of individualism and individual success. Now, in the Haredi community, individual success is identified by the Haredi male field of work, which is Torah study, um, which women in that world don't engage in at the same level. So it leaves them in a place where they're they're unable to achieve success as defined by Haredi society. Right. I think in the piece, she raised some very important issues about the autonomy of women in Haredi communities. For instance, she brought up that, you know, many Haredi women don't drive or will ask their husbands whether or not they can drive. Um, and this was like a, a big issue that she spoke about. That being said, though, I question the premise of her article that liberal feminists are failing Haredi women um, by not trying to save them from this culture. And I wonder how you think that, uh, in your opinion, what would be a way to engage Haredi women in this conversation of uh, through their own culture, through their own cultural lens? Because I agree with you, none of us are Haredi, so we're outsiders speaking on this conversation. And I think when you're a transnational post-colonial feminist, it's important to focus on ways that women can empower themselves within these communities. So maybe we could talk about a little bit about the different ways that liberal feminism would suggest that Haredi women go about uh, achieving change for themselves and ways that you can achieve those goals um, through a transnational post-colonial feminist lens. Sure. So just to give a, a very brief background for, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what transnational feminism is versus liberal feminism versus post-colonial feminism, when she, when she criticizes what she calls liberal feminism, which she means transnational feminism, is feminists who don't want to impose Western values on foreign cultures as a form of liberating women in those cultures. Um, now, her criticism is that that just leaves the, the Haredi women in the, in the dust, meaning they have they, they get no support. That's not what transnational feminism is. What it really is, is that that's the first element, which is not imposing foreign ideals and values on a culture. The second aspect of that is serving as allies to women who are really living within those communities in the way that, that they want that alliance to be formed, meaning what a Western transnational feminist should be doing um, and what many of them do do is go into these communities, talk to women who live in these communities, find out what they're what, what they want to change, what they what improvements they want to make in their society for women, and then find out from those women how they can be a support to that. Um, she actually mentions in the article, uh, she references uh, Saba Mahmoud, who, who was a professor at UC Berkeley, and she criticizes her for saying that, you know, having Western, like bringing Western feminism into the, into 
which she refers to as conservative non-Western cultures, actually stymies the inquiry into the lived experience of, of these women, which is true. But Yehudis takes it one step further to, to suggest or imply that that means that no one is helping, as opposed to Saba Mahmoud, who I would assume would promote the, the conversation, would promote not stymying the inquiry, would actually promote creating that inquiry and then finding out how, how we can help them. Um, so to just apply that to Haredi society, I think that first and foremost, Haredi society is not going to make a, a change based on liberal Western feminist ideals. It's just not going to happen and it shouldn't happen. That would be that would be the wrong solution. What it should be based on is Torah values and ideals, because there is real justice for women that can be found in our culture and in our sources. And that's where that should be coming from. And what Yehudis refers to as liberal feminists should be doing is talking to Haredi women about how they can support them in that endeavor. I just want to clarify something for the listeners, because it might be a little challenging for people who are new to this conversation to follow. We're saying that when the author of this piece, Yehudis Fletcher, uses the term liberal feminist, she's speaking about transnational feminists. But when you guys are saying liberal feminist, you mean white girl feminists, you mean Western feminists. Right. Liberal feminists. Um we should be referring to them as global feminists, which is basically white, the exportation of white girl feminism to the rest of the world. She confuses the terminology in the article, but the, they are two almost polar opposite forms of feminism. Uh, right. And I think that's a really, really important distinction to make here, because the idea that global feminists should be coming into communities such as Haredi communities, but you can apply this to many other communities across the globe and try to push their idea of feminism onto these women. I personally believe that this actually stymies these women's free choice. It, it gets in the way of their ability to fully express um, their idea of what feminism is. And I think that the failure to make that distinction in, in her article is very clear. I think it's a misapplication of of feminism to assume that you need global feminism to come in and save these women. I think the point of feminism is to empower women to make changes in their communities for themselves and of their own volition and in the way that feels right for them and addresses so, their own concerns. So just to be clear, a global feminist is a feminist trying to export Western feminism to non-Western societies, a transnational feminist is someone who tries to empower women within those societies to find the solutions they're looking for that don't push them into conflict with their own society. And a post-colonial feminist is a feminist within that society trying to liberate women in that society. Right, exactly. And, and the truth is these global feminists, it's actually, in my opinion, anti-feminist because what they're really doing is stripping these women of their own agency. They're coming in and telling them you don't know what you really want. We know what's better for you. This is what you should be doing and trying to enforce that. It's a form of neocolonialism. Absolutely. What I gathered from the piece is that this, you know, the author had specific wants and needs that weren't able to be addressed in her community. And, and she wrote that uh, women in these communities don't really have much of a choice. If they stray from what's the common path, then they're ostracized from the community. And I do think that that's an issue that is worthwhile to speak about, meaning that there should be some more ability to change one's situation and with still respecting the deep like 
Jewish affiliation, specifically with Haredi community that that a lot of these people do come from. It's not a matter of a lot of the times they want to leave the fold of of like practicing Jewish culture as seriously as their counterparts. They might just want to express that in a different way. But I don't think that all Haredi women necessarily have those same exact concerns. Um, and so I think it's very important that a conversation happen within the Haredi community about what the women really want, what mainly concerns women in those communities, and let them be the drivers of the discussion of how they can properly change within their own context versus feeling that this context is so oppressive, so not conducive to any change that you have to completely leave it and then impose somebody else's framework on it in order to change it. Right. The truth is, I don't even feel comfortable suggesting what changes should be made in those communities um, for women. What I do know is that Yehudis Fletcher, she she says that she's still part of the Haredi community, which is probably true. She's probably not lying, but she definitely has one foot in Western society, too. You know, she's she's getting, uh, I think, a second degree now at a university. She's clearly she's clearly not enveloped in the in the Haredi community to the extent that many other women are. But I think that actually gives her a lot of potential power um, to serve as a bridge between the women who are really living within the Haredi communities and those women in the West who want to help without infringing on on that culture. She can she can be that bridge to make those introductions so that transnational feminists can start having that dialogue with women in the Haredi communities, finding out what they really do want, what changes they actually want in their communities, and then figuring out ways to help them achieve that. Um, so I think I think Yehudis Fletcher actually has a lot of she has a lot of potential power, but I think unfortunately she's with this article she's misusing it. She's it's actually to me the article is a little ironic because as I said at the beginning, um, a lot of these issues in the Haredi community are stemming from Western ideals, and it seems from the article that her solution is to bring in more Western feminist ideals to solve those issues, um, and I just think that's bound to fail. Whereas she she has. She has something within her, within who she is, that can actually be really productive and, and help make real change. Maybe it would be helpful if we just examine to what extent we think Haredi society is an expression of like authentic Jewish society versus a colonized version of Jewish society. And, and I think it's also helpful to differentiate between Haredi society in the diaspora versus Haredi society in the land of Israel? Um, I think it's a really complicated question uh, because, you know, Haredi ideology obviously stems from something real and true that's coming from, from our sources, uh, but it's also heavily influenced by Christian society in the diaspora. You know, and, and I think that the two often, um, I think over time, the development has, has kind of fused a lot of those ideologies together. Well, I, I would say that definitely, I think it's important to point out what the Haredim get right. Like, where is Haredi society genuinely expressing our people's identity, our people's values, our people's culture, stretching back thousands of years, even prior to our displacement and colonization? And uh, I, I would say clearly where they have it right is the importance they place on halakha the importance they place on the legal components of our identity and their fight over the last couple centuries to defend and preserve the legal components of our identity. I mean, that's what, you know, the Haredi world has championed since the creation of Orthodox Judaism a couple hundred years ago, you know, in the wake of the Haskalah, the Orthodox Jews 
have fought for the ritual and legal components of our identity against many formidable external threats uh, and internal threats, you know, within the Jewish people. Uh, but they clearly dropped the ball when it came to uh, the national and territorial components of our identity. But I, I might also argue our our fundamental worldview. I think the context of Jewish identity, the context of Jewish history, the context of halacha, like the purpose of the people of Israel in human history, that might be something that really faded into the background of Haredi society, where the like primary importance was placed on the specific details of each law and ritual. Which might have been even the right move for, you know, two millennia, but it left them vulnerable when national movements started stemming up all over the, the world and a liberalist ideology started stemming up when all of these isms began to take place in you know the 19th and 20th centuries. It left them really vulnerable because if they have no collectivist infrastructure or very, you know, if, if it's de-emphasized, then suddenly it leaves their ideology exposed to incorporating foreign ideologies that don't conflict with that very narrow understanding of of their culture. Right. You see it actually to a certain extent, I think, in the brisker Torah world, that because they downplayed to a certain extent the sources that provide the ideological worldview of the Jewish people, whether we're talking about uh, Sefer Kuzari, the teachings of the Maharal of Prague, the Ramchal, uh, the Gona Vilna, the uh, Nefesh Achaim, uh, and certainly today we have uh, the teachings of Rav Kook. Um, that really provide us with the context, with the worldview, with the mission of the Jewish people. Once that's removed, you have a situation where, whether they be Haredi or modern Orthodox, you have a situation where Jews can be 100% uh, loyal to halakha, to the like legal components of our identity, while at the same time, living within the context of another civilization and even adopting the values and basic worldview of another civilization. And maybe even subconsciously, not even noticing that, realizing that it's coming from a foreign a foreign culture. Yeah. I think one more element to all of this that's, that's important to note is this idea of backlash, meaning that it's not just, uh, you know, the Western influences that have created a lot of issues in Haredi society, specifically individualism, but also, I think, a backlash of feeling threatened by being forced to change a lifestyle has actually um, created more harm on women in the Haredi communities and potentially on, on everyone in the Haredi communities, just because when a community is feeling that their values are being threatened, you know, they come back twice as strong um, in those convictions. Um, even if that's that wouldn't necessarily be a natural progression of their own cultural development. Right. And in that sense, I, I do want to say that I perceive the Israeli Haredi community to have far more of a collectivist mindset than the diaspora Haredi community. I think individualism, especially the individualism of the West, is much more present in diaspora Haredi communities than it is in the Israeli Haredi community. And that's, that's a product of them living in a more collectivist society in general. Mm -hmm. Although Israel also has its issues with individualism. Sure. Would it be fair to say that a collectivist society creates more space 
for women to be empowered in their traditional roles. Right. So women, women in Haredi communities, again, I for, just based on what I've seen, I'm not I'm not coming as someone from that community. But from what I've seen, women in Haredi communities in Israel are very highly respected in their roles as women and, you know, in, in traditional female roles. Um, more so than in diaspora communities where the emphasis seems to be like it is in all of Western society, where the, the emphasis seems to be on individual success, which is generally assigned to the male sphere. Right. And I think that identifying that difference between placing the value on the individual versus placing the value on the collective can help give insight into um, how Haredi women do actually feel empowered in their roles. Um, as women in, in a more traditional setting um, versus in a, in a Western context where if your value is only what you can contribute on an individual level, then it, it makes sense that you would make the assessment that, you know, the women's traditional role is, is not as valuable as a contribution and therefore not as empowering. But if you can shift the mindset to understanding the value of the collective and, and living as a collective, then it becomes much easier to understand why women choose these traditional roles as a way to feel empowered um, and express their own ideas of, you know, what it means to be a woman um, and fulfill that to the highest level. And not just empowered, but feel highly respected in their own societies, meaning feel that their role is as important, if not more important than the traditional male role. Right. All right. All right. So that's a lot for listeners to think about. Yes. Very important subject to unpack because I think oftentimes, especially people coming from the West, uh, we are unaware of how much we can project certain worldviews onto other communities and how it's actually very harmful for people in those communities and causes reactionary effects, like you said, Sharona, um, that actually make situations worse for whether it be women or others. And so to acknowledge this disconnect and to improve our discourse on the way that we talk about these things and also really empower the women within those communities to have this discourse for themselves without us imposing our ideas of, of what they should be or what they should want um, is a really important conversation to have. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think that this conversation is really an important piece of the broader post-colonial Jewish conversation. And I think uh, maybe in future episodes, Lizzie, we'll continue to unpack, you know, how post-colonialism should or shouldn't be applied to Jewish issues. But certainly this project, uh, Sharona's project of developing post-colonial Hebrew feminism as a way to really empower Hebrew women in our own society uh, is crucial. It's a crucial piece of this. And, uh, and, and I should also throw out there that uh, Sharona, you are about to begin a Hebrew feminism fellowship, correct? For women who want to be involved in developing these ideas. Yeah, it's actually very exciting. Um, starting Rosh Chodesh Tevet, we're launching a Hebrew feminism fellowship for the purpose of developing Hebrew feminist theory. For those listeners not yet living in the Jewish calendar, Rosh Chodesh Tevet is a month from now. It is now Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Um, so applications are the, the applications are now. Applications will be open. <laughs> applications are open now. Applications are open are opening tonight. Thursday night. Thursday night. Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Okay. <laughs> okay, fine. So go ahead. Okay, and uh, if you're subscribed to the the Vision Mag newsletter, you should be receiving an email with a link to the application, or you can check out the link in the show notes. 
right. the application. We can definitely include the link to that application in our show notes. Uh, and for listeners looking to find their show notes, you go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage eight eight. Sharona, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Truly enlightening. And listeners, once again, if you want to support what we're doing here, go to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and click donate on that menu bar up top. Again, this show is 100% listener funded. And if you're not in a position to contribute financially, please give us a positive rating, positive review, and spread this episode and all episodes of this podcast uh, with your friends. You know, the education we're trying to do here is really crucial and uh, necessary for advancing the Jewish people to the next stage of our people's story. 